Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 24. I've decided this is the right time for another wander. For the next few episodes, we're going to cover Oswald's interrogation. There are literally thousands of books on the Kennedy assassination, tens of millions of written pages of evidence, theory, and speculation. The horrible nature of the entire circumstance and what happened, the totality of it all, ultimately resulted in the failure to obtain a complete and thorough investigation, one that was done in a timely enough manner to really get at the truth. Well, the bottom line is that all this led to a continuing doubt about what really happened that day in Dealey Plaza, or more specifically, the who and the why of it. Our country went first to passive acceptance of the Warren Commission's lone gunman narrative, progressing then to a real questioning of whether or not that was true, and then finally, a plethora of speculation related to each one of the conspiracy theories as they began to develop and matriculate. The last few podcast episodes are a really good example of what happens when the truth scatters to the wind. We've been focused and fixated on a bolus of minute evidence that would either place Oswald in the sixth floor window as a shooter or refute that he even physically could have been up there at that moment. And of course, Oswald never got a trial. And so, all of the evidence was never presented. That fact is for sure. One of the more important aspects of this relates to the idea that Oswald tragically was in the clutches of the government within a minute and a half of the shooting. And even though he escaped, he was then apprehended within a little more than an hour after Kennedy was shot. But unfortunately, another person, Officer Tippett, was killed in the aftermath. This nabbing of a suspect, whether it was great police work, good luck, or a combination thereof, and perhaps mixed with something more nefarious, whatever it was, in any event, it gave the government a terrific head start to figure out the truth. Tragically, Oswald would be alive for less than 48 hours after his capture, and only about 12 of those hours would be spent in interrogation. If this man were innocent, or if he were just a patsy, as he stated publicly, then, over some period of time, through his own efforts of defense or public proclamation, and the duty that would have been bestowed on the government to learn more and reveal more had he stayed alive, it would have significantly enhanced the world's ability to get at the truth there would have been a much greater possibility of us knowing the answer to the who and the why behind the Kennedy assassination. That is not to say that Oswald would have been exonerated. Far from it, I think. But the true picture of what was really happening might have put his participation in a different light. This is speculation, too. But I say, in any case, that we would have known more and speculated less. That is the truth for sure. Had Oswald stayed alive and had there been more time to interrogate him and more time for the government to properly investigate this tragedy, 
I believe the truth would have come to light. What we do have is a less than perfect record of 12 hours of precious interrogation that occurred between Friday when he was captured and Sunday when he was killed. We know pretty clearly that he lied a number of times during the course of those conversations with the authorities, and the Warren Commission made their conclusions partially on the fact that he lied during those interrogations. There is no rocket science here. He lied about some pretty basic things, things that, if you were not guilty, then perhaps there was no real reason to lie about them, unless perhaps you were covering up something bigger. Other things he said are interesting, and they certainly fall into the conspiracy theory realm, but the credibility of those things has to be weighed in light of the other lies that he told. And here was the man that, if he had been guilty, and he had made a simple and full confession, well, he would have saved the American people and, more importantly, the American Republic, the pain and anguish associated with 60 years of not knowing the truth about the who and the why. He never did that. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 24. You know, one of the most interesting things about this case is how the Dallas Police Department dealt with the interrogation of Oswald. He was captured Friday afternoon, and a little more than 48 hours later on Sunday morning, he would be on his way to being transferred to the county jail facilities when he would effectively speak his last words. Well, his last words to investigators, anyway. So it really was a relatively short period of time that the interrogators had with him before he perished. Honestly, the whole interrogation process was a disaster, and even Chief Curry would later admit that they broke almost every rule in the book. Perhaps every rule with the exception of physically abusing the prisoner. Well, they had already done that during the capture, so check that box. Now, many would say that Oswald invited that. He had a loaded weapon, and were it not for a faulty firing pin in the gun, perhaps one more cop would have bit the dust, this time in the Texas theater. But that didn't happen, and they instead gave Oswald a whooping in the middle of securing the prisoner. If you ever saw the swollen eye he was sporting right after that encounter, you would likely agree. I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. I'm just pointing out that he got it. Nevertheless, Oswell did talk while he was in custody about where he was at during the time of the shots and some other things, too. So we need to take a little bit of time to address that part of those 48 hours, that part that relates to his testimony regarding his whereabouts and other things discussed as well, as long as we're at it. So let's do that. Let's take a wander. Let's listen and learn a little more about the alibi as Oswald tells it through the notes that were taken that day by others, and about other details that were discussed with Oswald in the 12 hours of his questioning. And let's do that before we go on to talk about those witnesses that were outside of the depository and that saw somebody in the sixth floor window. We'll get to that in a couple of episodes after this unplanned wander. Lee Harvey Oswald spent almost all of the last 48 hours of his life in the police and courts building, 
a gray stone structure in downtown Dallas that housed the headquarters of the Dallas Police Department and the city jail. Following his arrest early Friday afternoon, Oswald was brought immediately to this building and remained there until Sunday morning, November 24th, when he was scheduled to be transferred to the county jail. At 11.21 a.m. that Sunday morning, in full view of millions of people watching on television, Oswald was fatally wounded by Jack Ruby, who emerged suddenly from the crowd of newsmen and policemen witnessing the transfer and fired a single shot at Oswald. Before this fateful moment on Sunday morning, the focal center of the police and courts building during Oswald's detention was the third floor, which housed the main offices of the Dallas Police Department. The public elevators on this floor opened into a lobby midpoint of a corridor that extended along the length of the floor for about 140 feet. At one end of this seven-foot-wide corridor were the offices occupied by Chief of Police Jesse E. Curry and his immediate subordinates. At the other end was a small press room that could accommodate only a handful of reporters. Along this corridor were other police offices, including those of the major detective bureaus. Between the press room and the lobby was the complex of offices belonging to the Homicide and Robbery Bureau, the division that was headed up by Captain J. Will Fritz, whom you have already gotten a chance to get acquainted with on previous episodes of this podcast. The policeman who seized Oswald at the Texas Theater arrived with him at the police department building at about 2 p.m. and brought him immediately to the third floor offices of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau to await the arrival of Captain Fritz from the Texas School Book Depository. After about 15 or 20 minutes, Oswald was ushered into the office of Captain Fritz for the first of many interrogation sessions. At 4.05 p.m., he was taken to the basement assembly room for his first lineup. While waiting outside the lineup room, Oswald was searched and five cartridges and other items were removed from his pockets. Hard to believe that cartridges were still in his pockets at that point, but apparently they were. That crack Dallas police officer team hard at work again. After the lineup, at about 4.20 p.m., Oswald was returned to Captain Fritz's office for further questioning. Two hours later, at 6.20 p.m., Oswald was taken downstairs for a second lineup and returned to Captain Fritz's office within 15 minutes for additional interrogation. Shortly after 7 p.m., Captain Fritz signed a complaint charging Oswald with the murder of Patrolman Tippett. Oswald was formally arraigned, that is, he was advised of the charges at 7.10 p.m. before Justice of the Peace David L. Johnston, who came to Captain Fritz's office for the occasion. After a third lineup at about 7.40 p.m., Oswald was returned to Fritz's office. About an hour later, after further questioning, Oswald's fingerprints and palm prints were taken and a paraffin test was administered in Fritz's office, after which the questioning resumed again. At 11.26 p.m., Fritz signed the complaint charging Oswald with the murder of President Kennedy. And then, shortly after midnight, detectives took Oswald to the basement assembly room for an appearance of several minutes before members of the press. At about 12.20 a.m., Oswald was delivered to the jailer who placed him into a maximum security cell on the fifth floor. 
too bad they didn't have a sixth floor cell. That would have been fitting, wouldn't it? His cell was the center one in a block of three cells that were separated from the remainder of the jail area. The cells on either side of Oswald were empty, and a guard was nearby whenever Oswald was present. Shortly after 1.30 a.m., Oswald was brought to the Identification Bureau on the fourth floor and arraigned before Justice of the Peace Johnston, this time for the murder of President Kennedy. The questioning resumed in Fritz's office on Saturday morning at about 10.25 a.m., and the session lasted nearly an hour and 10 minutes. Oswald was then returned to his cell for an hour, and at 12.35 p.m., he was brought back to Fritz's office for an additional half hour of questioning. From 1.10 to 1.30 p.m., Oswald's wife, Marina, and his mother, Marguerite, visited him in the fourth floor visiting area. At 1.40 p.m., he attempted what is now a rather infamous call to a prominent attorney in New York. We'll talk about that in a later episode. The attorney declined to represent him. He appeared in yet another lineup at 2.15 p.m. on Saturday. Then, at 2.45 p.m., with Oswald's consent, a member of the Identification Bureau obtained fingernail scrapings and specimens of hair from him. He returned to the fourth floor at 3.30 p.m. for a 10-minute visit with his brother, Robert Oswald. Between 4 and 4.30 p.m., Oswald made two telephone calls to Mrs. Ruth Payne at her home in Irving. And then, about 5.30 p.m., he was visited by the president of the Dallas Bar Association, with whom he spoke for about five minutes about the need for representation. From 6 to 7.15 p.m., Oswald was interrogated once again in Captain Fritz's office and then returned to his cell. At 8 p.m., he called the Payne residence again and asked to speak to his wife, but Mrs. Payne told him that Marina was no longer there. Before he knew it, Sunday morning had arrived. Oswald was signed out of jail at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday, November 24th, and taken to Captain Fritz's office for what would turn out to be a final round of questioning. The transfer party left Fritz's office at about 11.15 a.m. And then, at 11.21 a.m., Oswald was shot. He was declared dead at Parkland Hospital at 1.07 p.m. The man that had just killed the President of the United States, or at least was charged with the crime, and also the killing of an innocent policeman, was dead. He was the key to understanding what really happened that day in Dallas, and the authorities had had a scant 12 hours with him to figure out the truth. It was a travesty of justice of epic proportions. So what did we learn in those 12 hours? Well, let's start with who the man was who was put in charge of interrogating Oswald. John Will Fritz was born in Dublin, Texas in 1895. He was 68 years old at the time of the assassination, and he was an old-school homicide investigator, an old cowboy of sort, an investigator that grew up and flourished in another era before the modern technologies we now know today were readily available. But he got results. 
After taking part in the First World War, he joined the Dallas Police Department in January 1921. He started as a patrolman, but after two years, he was promoted to the detective's office. In 1932, Fritz became captain of homicide and robbery. According to his biographer, though he was made inspector of detectives in 1935, he voluntarily returned to being a captain in 1944. In 1947, he received the special title of senior captain, and later he reportedly refused the opportunity to become police chief in Dallas. During his leadership of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau, Fritz gained a reputation as an effective interrogator. In one 10-year period, the Homicide Division reported 98% of the murders in Dallas were cleared by arrest. On November 22, 1963, Fritz was on duty at the Trademark when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. He then went to Dealey Plaza and was with Seymour Weitzman, Roger Craig, Eugene Boone, and Luke Mooney when the rifle was found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. After Lee Harvey Oswald was arrested, Fritz was put in charge of his interrogation. Also present during these interviews was FBI agents James Hostie, James Bookout, and, at times, Forrest Sorrells, along with T.J. Nolley and David B. Grant from the Secret Service, and then Robert I. Nash, who was a United States Marshal, and finally, Billy L. Senkel and Faye M. Turner from the Dallas Police Department. As I mentioned, Oswald was interrogated for a total of approximately 12 hours between 2.30 p.m. on Friday, November 22, 1963, and 11.15 a.m. on Sunday, November 24, 1963. There were no stenographic or tape recordings of these interviews. Can you believe that? Let me say that again. There were no stenographic or tape recordings of these interviews. Fritz would later explain that he didn't tape or have stenographic records prepared during any of his interrogations. It was surely extraordinary in the case of the president's murder, but it was unfortunately more of a standard operating procedure for a cowboy from another era. And in the end, in general, the public cares about the capture and incarceration of murderers, and no one in Dallas at the time, much cared about the speech transcription approach used during interrogations. Although, you have to shame the Secret Service, the FBI, the U.S. Marshal's Office, and the Postal Inspection Service, they all let it go on. A sort of mini-conspiracy of sorts. Well, the good news is this, if there is such a thing here. Several of the investigators present that day present at one or more of the interrogation sessions, prepared memoranda prior to testifying before the commission. Memoranda which set forth their recollections of the questioning of Oswald and his responses. The commission highlighted some, but not all of them, in their report. Those that did get featured were, as far as the commission was concerned, the relevant ones for their purpose. Not all of those interrogation witnesses and participants said the same thing about what Oswald said or what went on in each of those interrogation sessions. Whether that was just an honest difference of opinion in what they heard or outright bending of the facts to suit the narrative, well, we'll probably never know. 
but you'll hear a little bit of that in a minute. Obviously, Captain Fritz, as the principal interrogator, filed a report, but we also have to pay close attention to the other reports, including the report of the several agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, including Agent James Hosty. Hosty figures prominently into the local Dallas FBI story around Oswald and his wife, Marina. We will definitely get to that subplot in a later episode. The Warren Commission also included the reports of Thomas J. Kelly from the U.S. Secret Service and also a report from U.S. Postal Inspector H.D. Holmes. So, like so many prominent federal investigations, you had the FBI, the Secret Service, the U.S. Marshals, and the Postal Inspection Service, all there, along with the Dallas Police Department and, at times, even members of the Dallas County Sheriff's Office. Well, the Sheriff's Office was at least lurking around Fritz's office. Roger Craig was a good example, and we have already told his story. In a moment, we'll get to what Fritz said about that encounter with Roger Craig. That now infamous encounter with Oswald in Fritz's office that you heard about in one of our previous podcast episodes. And remember, this was not a federal crime to kill the president in 1963. It was strictly a capital murder case under the jurisdiction of Texas state law. It would have normally been just local officials and perhaps state level officials in Texas investigating the murder. But this was no ordinary case, as we know. During the questioning of Oswald on the third floor of the police department, more than 100 representatives of the press, radio, and television were crowded into the hallway through which Oswald had to pass when being taken from his cell to Captain Fritz's office for interrogation. Reporters tried to interview Oswald during these trips. Between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning, he appeared in the hallway at least 16 times. The generally confused conditions outside and inside Captain Fritz's office increased the difficulty of police questioning. Advised by the police that he could communicate with an attorney, Oswald, we know, made several telephone calls on Saturday in an effort to procure representation of his own choice and discuss the matter with the president of the local bar association, as I just mentioned. The local bar association offered to obtain counsel. Oswald declined the offer, saying that he would first try to obtain counsel by himself. By Sunday morning, he had not yet engaged an attorney. As you heard in the chronology that we just went over, at 7.10 p.m. on November 22, 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was formally advised that he had been charged with the murder of Patrolman J.D. Tippett. Several witnesses to the Tippett slaying and to the subsequent flight of the gunman had positively identified Oswald in police lineups. While positive firearm identification evidence was not available at the time, the revolver in Oswald's possession at the time of his arrest was of a type which could have fired the shots that killed Tippett. As a footnote here, these lineups were highly controversial. As I have said on a number of occasions on the podcast, Warren Commission critics point out some of the absurd problems with them. Really, these were shortcomings of the Dallas Police Department investigation and not the commission. Harold Weisberg was one of those iconic early critics that was generally highly respected for his work on the Assassination Review. We have talked about him on earlier podcast episodes. We'll feature some of his observations about the flaws in the lineup when we get to that topic. 
Some of the actions of the police regarding those lineups were ludicrous at best and really highlight the attitude of the police force in Dallas in that era when it came to preserving the rights of the accused. But in fairness to everyone, it was an extraordinary event that from the very beginning had heavy forces bearing down on it. The formal charge against Oswald for the assassination of President Kennedy was lodged shortly after 1.30 a.m. By 10 p.m. of the day of the assassination, the FBI had traced the Manlicher Carcano rifle found on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository to a mail-order house in Chicago, which had purchased it from a distributor in New York. Approximately six hours later, the Chicago firm advised that this rifle had been ordered in March by an A. Heidel for shipment to Post Office Box 2915 in Dallas, Texas. This was a box rented by Oswald. Payment for the rifle was remitted by a money order signed by A. Heidel. By 6.45 p.m. on November 23rd, the FBI was able to advise the police that, as a result of a handwriting analysis of the documents used to purchase the rifle, it had concluded that the rifle had been ordered by Lee Harvey Oswald. Throughout Friday and Saturday, the Dallas police released to the public many of the details concerning the alleged evidence against Oswald. Police officials discussed important aspects of the case, usually in the course of impromptu and confused press conferences in the third floor corridor. Some of the information divulged was erroneous. Efforts by the news media representatives to reconstruct the crime and promptly report details frequently led to erroneous and often conflicting reports. At the urgings of the newsman, Chief of Police Jesse E. Curry brought Oswald to a press conference in the police assembly room shortly after midnight of the day Oswald was arrested. The assembly room was crowded with newsmen who had come to Dallas from all over the country. They shouted questions at Oswald and flashed cameras at him. Among this group was a 52-year-old Dallas nightclub operator, Jack Ruby. Now, let's turn to what Captain Fritz said in his own statement about the interrogation. We'll pick it up right as Chief Curry is at the school book depository and gets word that Oswald is missing from the employee inventory. This is what happens next, and it happens rapidly. I'll speak in the first person as though I were Captain Fritz giving his statement. About this time, some officer came to me and told me that Mr. Roy S. Truly wanted to see me, as one of his men had left the building. I had talked to Mr. Truly previously, and at that time, he thought everyone was accounted for who worked in the building. Mr. Truly then came with another officer and told me that a Lee Harvey Oswald had left the building. I asked if he had an address where this man lived, and he told me that he did, that it was in Irving at 2515 West 5th Street. I then left the rest of the search of the building with Chief Lumpkin and other officers who were there and told Detectives R.M. Sims and E.L. Boyd to accompany me to the City Hall where we could make a quick check for police record and any other information of value that we would then go to Irving, Texas in an effort to apprehend this man. While I was in the building, I was told that Officer J.D. Tippett had been shot in Oaklift 
Immediately after I reached my office, I asked the officers who had brought in a prisoner from the Tippett shooting who the man was who shot the officer. They told me his name was Lee Harvey Oswald, and I replied that that was our suspect in the president's killing. I instructed the officers to bring this man into the office after talking to the officers for a few minutes in the presence of officers R.M. Sims and E.L. Boyd of the Homicide Bureau and possibly some Secret Service men. Just as I had started questioning this man, I received a call from Gordon Shanklin, agent in charge of the FBI here in Dallas, who asked me to let him talk to Jim Bookout, one of his agents. He told Mr. Bookout that he would like for James P. Hosty to sit in on this interview as he knew about these people and had been investigating them before. I invited Mr. Bookout and Mr. Hosty in to help with the interview. After some questions about this man's full name, I asked him if he worked for the Texas School Book Depository, and he told me he did. I asked him which floor he worked on, and he said, usually on the second floor but sometimes his work took him to all the different floors. I asked him what part of the building he was in at the time the president was shot, and he said that he was having his lunch at about that time on the first floor. Mr. Truly had told me that one of the police officers had stopped this man immediately after the shooting somewhere near the back stairway. So I asked Oswald where he was when the police officer stopped him. He said he was on the second floor drinking a Coca-Cola when the officer came in. I asked him why he left the building, and he said there was so much excitement, he didn't think there would be any more work done that day, and that this company wasn't particular about their hours, that they did not punch a clock, and that he thought it would be just as well that he left for the rest of the afternoon. I asked him if he owned a rifle, and he said that he did not. He said that he had seen one at the building a few days ago and that Mr. Truly and some of the employees were looking at it. I asked him where he went to when he left work, and he told me that he had a room on 1026 North Beckley, that he went over there and changed his trousers and got his pistol and went to the picture show. I asked him why he carried his pistol, and he remarked, you know how boys do when they have a gun, they just carry it. Mr. Hostie asked Oswald if he had been in Russia. He told him yes, he had been in Russia three years. He asked him if he had written to the Russian embassy, and he said he had. This man became very upset and arrogant with Agent Hostie when he questioned him and accused him of accosting his wife two different times. When Agent Hostie attempted to talk to this man, he would hit his fist on the desk. I asked Oswald what he meant by accosting his wife when he was talking to Mr. Hosty. He said Mr. Hosty mistreated his wife two different times when he talked with her, practically accosted her. Mr. Hosty also asked Oswald if he had been to Mexico City, which he denied. During this interview, he told me that he had gone to school in New York and in Fort Worth, Texas, and that after going into the Marines, he finished his high school education. I asked him if he won any medals for rifle shooting in the Marines. He said he won the usual medals. I asked him what his political beliefs were, and he said he had none, but that he belonged to the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and told me that they had headquarters in New York and that he had been secretary for this organization in New Orleans when he lived there. 
He also said that he supports the Castro revolution. One of the officers had told me that he had rented the room on Beckley under the name of O.F. Lee. I asked him why he did this. He said the landlady did it. She didn't understand his name correctly. Oswald asked if he was allowed an attorney, and I told him he could have any attorney he liked, and that the telephone would be available to him up in the jail, and he could call anyone he wished. I believe it was during this interview that he first expressed a desire to talk to Mr. Apt, an attorney in New York. Interviews on this day were interrupted by show-ups where witnesses identified Oswald positively as the man who killed Officer Tippett and the time that I would have to talk to another witness or to some of the officers. One of these show-ups was held at 4.35 p.m. and the next one at 6.30 p.m., and at 7.55 p.m. At 7.05 p.m., I signed a complaint before Bill Alexander of the district attorney's office charging Oswell with the Tippett murder. At 7.10 p.m., Oswell was arraigned before Judge Johnston. During the second day interview, I asked Oswald about a card that he had in his purse showing that he belonged to the Fair Play for Cuba committee, which he admitted was his. I asked him about another identification card in his pocket bearing the name of Alex Heidel. He said he picked up that name in New Orleans while working in the Fair Play for Cuba organization. He said he spoke Russian, that he corresponded with people in Russia, and that he received newspapers from Russia. I showed the rifle to Marina Oswald, and she could not positively identify it, but said that it looked like the rifle that her husband had and that he had been keeping it in the garage at Mrs. Payne's home in Irving. After this, I questioned Oswald further about the rifle, but he denied owning a rifle at all and said that he did have a small rifle some years past. I asked him if he owned a rifle in Russia, and he said, you know, you can't buy a rifle in Russia. You can only buy shotguns. I had a shotgun in Russia and hunted some while there. Marina Oswald had told me that she thought her husband might have brought the rifle from New Orleans, which he denied. He told me that he had some things stored in a garage at Mrs. Payne's home in Irving and that he had a few personal effects at his room on Beckley. I instructed the officers to make a thorough search of both of these places. After reviewing all of the evidence pertaining to the killing of President Kennedy before District Attorney Henry Wade and his assistant Bill Alexander and Jim Allen, former first assistant district attorney of Dallas County, I signed a complaint before the district attorney charging Oswald with the murder of President Kennedy. This was at 11.26 p.m. He was arraigned before Judge David Johnston at 1.35 a.m., November 23, 1963. On November 23rd at 10.25 a.m., Oswald was brought from the jail for an interview. Present at this time was FBI agent Jim Bukout, Forrest Sorrells, special agent in charge of Secret Service, United States Marshal Robert Nash, and homicide officers. During this interview, I talked to Oswald about his leaving the building, and he told me he left by bus and rode to a stop near home and walked on to his house. At the time of Oswald's arrest, he had a bus transfer in his pocket. He admitted this was given to him by the bus driver when he rode the bus after leaving the building. 
One of the officers had told me that a cab driver, William Wayne Whaley, thought he had recognized Oswald's picture as the man who had gotten in his cab near the bus station and rode to Beckley Avenue. I asked Oswald if he had ridden a cab on that day, and he said, yes, I did ride in the cab. The bus I got on near where I work got into heavy traffic and was traveling too slow, and I got off and caught a cab. I asked him about his conversation with the cab driver, and he said he remembered that when he got into the cab, a lady came up who also wanted a cab, and he told Oswald to tell the lady to take another cab. We found from the investigation the day before that when Oswald left home, he was carrying a long package. He usually went to see his wife on weekends, but this time he had gone on Thursday night. I asked him if he had told Buell Wesley Frazier why he had gone home a different night, and if he had told him anything about bringing back some curtain rods. He denied it. During this conversation, he told me he reached his home by cab and changed both his shirt and trousers before going to the show. He said his cab fare home was 85 cents. When asked what he did with his clothing that he took off when he got home, he said he put them in the dirty clothes. In talking with him further about his location at the time the president was killed, he said he ate lunch with some of the colored boys who worked with him. One of them was called Junior, and the other one was a little short man whose name he did not know. He said he had a cheese sandwich and some fruit, and that was the only package that he had brought with him to work, and denied that he had brought the long package described by Mr. Frazier and his sister. I asked him why he lived in a room while his wife was living in Irving. He said Mrs. Payne, the lady his wife lived with, was learning Russian, that his wife needed help with a young baby, and that it made a nice arrangement for both of them. He said he didn't know Mrs. Payne very well, but Mr. Payne and his wife, he thought, were separated a great deal of the time. He said he owned no car, but that the Paynes have two cars, and he told me in the garage at the Paynes home that he had some bags that had a lot of his personal belongings, that he had left them there after coming back from New Orleans in September. He said he had a brother, Robert, who lived in Fort Worth. We later found that this brother lived in Denton. He said the Paynes were close friends of his. I asked him if he belonged to the Communist Party, but he said that he had never had a card but repeated that he belonged to the Fair Play for Cuba organization, and he said that he belonged to the American Civil Liberties Union, and he paid $5 in dues. I asked him again why he carried the pistol to the show. He refused to answer questions about the pistol. He did tell me, however, that he had bought it several months before in Fort Worth, Texas. I noted that in questioning him that he did answer very quickly and I asked him if he had ever been questioned before, and he told me that he had. He was questioned one time for a long time by the FBI after he had returned from Russia. He said they used different methods. They tried the hard and the soft and the buddy method and said he was very familiar with interrogation. He reminded me that he did not have to answer any questions at all until he talked to his attorney. And I told him again that he could have an attorney any time he wished. He said he didn't have money to pay for a phone call to Mr. Apt. I told him to call Collect, if he liked, to use the jail phone, or that he could have another attorney if he wished. 
He said he didn't want another attorney. He wanted to talk to this attorney first. I believe he made this call later as he thanked me later during one of our interviews for allowing him the use of the telephone. I explained to him that all prisoners were allowed to use the telephone. I asked him why he wanted Mr. App instead of some available attorney. He told me he didn't know Mr. App personally, but that he was familiar with a case where Mr. App defended some people for a violation of the Smith Act, and that if he didn't get Mr. App, that he felt sure the American Civil Liberties Union would furnish him a lawyer. He explained to me that this organization helped people who needed attorneys and weren't able to get them. While in New Orleans, he lived at 4907 Magazine Street and at one time worked for the William Riley Company near that address. When asked about any previous arrests, he told me that he had a little trouble while working with the Fair Play for Cuba Committee and had a fight with some anti-Castro people. He also told me of a debate on some radio station in New Orleans where he debated with some anti-Castro people. I asked him what he thought of President Kennedy and his family, and he said he didn't have any view on the president. He said, I like the president's family very well. I have my own views about national policies. I asked him about a polygraph test. He told me he had refused a polygraph test with the FBI, and he certainly wouldn't take one at this time. Both Mr. Bookout of the FBI and Mr. Kelly and the marshal asked Oswald some questions during this interview. Oswald was placed back in jail at 11.33 a.m. At 12.35 p.m., Oswald was brought to the office for another interview with Inspector Kelly and some of the other officers and myself. I talked to Oswald about the different places he had lived in Dallas in an effort to find where he was living when the picture was made of him holding a rifle, which looked to be the same rifle we had recovered. This picture showed to be taken near a stairway with many identifying things in the backyard. He told me about one of the places where he had lived. Mrs. Payne had told me about where Oswald lived on Neely Street. Oswald was very evasive about this location. We found later that this was the place where the picture was made. I again asked him about his property and where his things might be kept, and he told me about the things at Mrs. Payne's residence and a few things on Beckley. He was placed back in jail at 1.10 p.m. At 6 o'clock p.m., I instructed the officers to bring Oswell back into the office, and in the presence of Jim Bookout, homicide officers, and Inspector Kelly of the Secret Service, I showed Oswald an enlarged picture of him holding a rifle and wearing a pistol. This picture had been enlarged by our crime lab from a picture found in the garage at Mrs. Payne's home. He said the picture was not his, that the face was his face, but that this picture had been made by someone superimposing his face. The other part of the picture was not him at all, and that he had never seen the picture before. When I told him that the picture was recovered from Mrs. Payne's garage, he said that picture had never been in his possession, and I explained to him that it was an enlargement of the small picture obtained in the search. At that time, I showed him the smaller picture. He denied ever seeing that picture and said that he knew all about photography and that he had done a lot of work in photography himself, and the small picture was a reduced picture of the large picture and had been made by some person unknown to him. 
He further stated that since he had been photographed here at the city hall and that people had been taking his picture while being transferred from my office to the jail door, that someone had been able to get a picture of his face and that they had made this picture. He told me that he understood photography real well and that in time he would be able to show that it was not his picture and that it had been made by someone else. At this time, he said that he did not want to answer any more questions, and he was returned to the jail about 7.15 p.m. At 9.30 on the morning of November 24th, I asked that Oswald be brought to the office. At that time, I showed him a map of the city of Dallas, which had been recovered in the search of his room at North Beckley. This map had some markings on it, one of which was where the president was shot. He said that the map had nothing to do with the president's shooting and again, as he had done in a previous interview, denied knowing anything of the shooting of the president or of the shooting of Officer Tippett. He said the map had been used to locate buildings where he had gone to talk to people about employment. During this interview, Inspector Kelly asked Oswald about his religious view and he replied that he didn't agree with all the philosophies on religion. He seemed evasive with Inspector Kelly about how he felt about religion, and I asked him if he believed in a deity. He was evasive and didn't answer this question. Someone of the federal officers asked Oswald if he thought Cuba would be better off since the president was assassinated. To this, he replied that he felt that since the president was killed, that someone else would take his place perhaps Vice President Johnson, and that his views would probably be largely the same as those of the president. I again asked him about the gun and about the picture of him holding a similar rifle, and at that time he again positively denied having any knowledge of the picture or the rifle and denied that he had even lived on Neely Street, and when I told him that friends who had visited him there said that he had lived there, he said they were mistaken about visiting him there because he had never lived there. During this interview, Oswell said he was a Marxist. He repeated two or three times, I am a Marxist, but not a Leninist Marxist. He told me that the station that he had debated on in New Orleans was the one who carried Bill Stakey's program. He denied again knowing Alex Heidel in New Orleans and again reiterated his belief in fair play for Cuba and what the committee stood for. After some questions, Chief Jesse E. Curry came to the office and asked me if I was ready for the man to be transferred. I told him we were ready as soon as the security was completed in the basement, where we were to place Oswald in a car to transfer him to the county jail. I had objected to the cameras obstructing the jail door, and the chief explained to me that these had been moved, and the people were moved back, and the cameramen were well back in the garage. I told the chief then that we were ready to go. He told us to go ahead with the prisoner, and that he and Chief Stevenson, who was with him, would meet us at the county jail. Oswald's shirt, which he was wearing at the time of arrest, had been removed and sent to the crime lab in Washington with all the other evidence for a comparison test. Oswald said he would like to have a shirt from his clothing to wear over the t-shirt that he was wearing at the time. We selected the best looking shirt from his things, but he said he would prefer wearing a black Ivy League type shirt indicating that it might be a little warmer.
We made this change, and I asked him if he wouldn't like to wear a hat to more or less camouflage his looks in the car while being transferred, as all of the people who had been viewing him had seen him bareheaded. He didn't want to do this. Then Officer J.R. Lavelle had cuffed his left hand to Oswell's right hand. Then we left the office for the transfer. Inasmuch as this report was made from rough notes and memory, it is entirely possible that one of these questions could be in a separate interview from the one indicated in this report. He was interviewed under the most adverse condition in my office, which is 9 feet 6 inches by 14 feet and has only one front door, which forces us to move this prisoner through hundreds of people each time he was carried from my office to the jail door some 20 feet during each of these transfers. The crowd would attempt to jam around him, shouting questions and many continuing slurs. This office is also surrounded by large glass windows, and there were many officers working next to these windows. I have no recorder in this office and was unable to record the interview. I was interrupted many times during these interviews to step from the office to talk to another witness or secure additional information from officers needed for the interrogation. Well, let's pause here and pick up the next part of the testimony from the FBI agents, and we'll cover that in episode 25. Thank you for listening to episode 24 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 